The Den. Conversations with Andrew Wolf. This week I'm in conversation with Blair Bowman, who has been a friend of Wolf for some time. Blair and I first met when World Whiskey Day was launched. Wolf designed the logo and since then we've kept in touch and enjoyed more than a few drams together. Blair is passionate about introducing the world to whiskey. He's an in-demand whiskey consultant, he's author of The Pocket Guide to Whiskey and regularly hosts whiskey training sessions and multi-sensory whiskey tastings around the world. Blair, welcome to the den. Andrew, thanks for having me in your den. Pleasure. Blair, I want to explore creativity in the whiskey industry with you. Um, clearly there's a lot of creativity in brand packaging, advertising, but for now let's look at the business of whiskey making. Are you seeing whiskey companies innovate? And if so, how? I mean, all the time. There's lots of really exciting things happening. And I think for anything, for Scotch whiskey in particular, the thing that's so fascinating about it is single malt whiskey is all made from the same three ingredients. So water, malted barley, and yeast. And they're all using the same ingredients because that's, you know, governed by law. They're all using the same processes, but they all taste so completely different and unique. So it's interesting because everyone's starting with the same kind of toolkit but trying to get something that's different than the competitors or maybe different from what they did before just by fine-tuning and adjusting like the tiniest little detail in one of these raw ingredients or in one of the processes and there's a lot of experimentation happening all the time across the sector some of it is kind of collaborative which is i think a really positive thing and unlike other sectors so you know sharing of you know research and knowledge about maturation or about yield from a certain variety of barley but then there's also a lot of it that's done kind of more on a kind of experimental R&D basis in-house. So quite a few of the bigger distilleries now have kind of experimental distilleries kind of tucked away within the kind of the site or the state of another distillery where they're doing really interesting projects and, and they're doing, different types and, of grains. Sorry. And they're doing that within the confines of the, the basic ingredients still, are they? So the, the, Yeah, they the, are. I mean, some of them are being a little bit more avant-garde and kind of doing stuff that technically speaking, wouldn't be allowed to be labelled as Scotch whisky, but they're now realising that they can actually push the boat out and consumers are understanding of that, certain consumers are understanding of that, that technically it might have to say spirit drink, which doesn't sound as sexy, but it might be a really interesting, you know, type of wood that's been finished and by law we're only allowed to use oak. And that's, you know, there's lots of reasons for that and that's like a whole other conversation, but I know people that are doing experiments with cherry wood and you know, all other types of wood that would be interesting to see how that tastes. And then also other types of grain, not just using barley. Um, so there's definitely a lot of exciting innovation still going on all the time. Yeah, so a quick a quick Google of innovation in whiskey threw up a lot on wood for me. Uh, mm. I, I, I was reading about casks and innovating different um, uh, finishing whiskies in different casks for different periods of time. And, and there's clearly a lot of innovation in that world. But I guess I guess I'm I'm really interested in going right back to the the raw ingredients and how they're innovating with those raw ingredients, um, because because the best creativity comes from limitation, in a way. And actually, yeah. I I I think the sector has been very creative thus far, and I guess I'm interested in in how creative it is going forward now. I think one of the ways that's driving it forward is actually sustainability. Mm. Um, the industry has some really ambitious targets actually to become you know, carbon neutral or carbon zero before five years in advance of the UK government's target. And it's on a pretty good track to get there. And that's driving a lot of this research and development. So people are looking to create a kind of carbon neutral barley 
by planting peas underneath the ground where you then store in the barley so that you get this kind of second growth that comes later that's you know saving is more efficient but also it helps in terms of the nitrogen that you need in the soil and there's all these clever things happening there there's a lot of innovation in kind of water use um the whiskey industry is incredibly energy intensive mm. um and actually to make whiskey sorry, yeah whiskey is seven times more energy intensive than gin um and 80 percent of all the energy used is actually just in heating or just generating heat for all the different processes that we need in the process um, so there's a lot of innovation going into that to kind of recycle energy, recycle heat. The famous example is on Isla, the, the swimming pool in the town of Beaumont has been kind of heated with the excess heat from the Beaumont spill. You know, that's quite a nice example, but there's lots of other clever ways that people are kind of recycling energy and heat. Um, and I think just across the board, everybody's quite conscious of sustainability now in all sectors, um, but especially in a sector that's known to be quite energy intensive and also using the land. So using all this barley that we're using, also the peat, which is a really important kind of bed for capturing carbon. Um, there's a lot of interesting work going into protecting the longevity for this sector and just protecting the land that we have. Isn't that good to hear that um, yeah. a, a, an, an old industry like whiskey making is starting to innovate and push the boundaries of, of energy use and and land use, I suppose. I mean, they're being being aware of what's yeah. happening in the land that they, they, they use. I mean, there's obviously commercial benefits to it as well, um, but a lot of it can be, you know, reducing certain things, and this can save, you know, money, which is a driving factor. So, you know, changing uh, the weight of how much you're shipping around, being more efficient with that, is going to save costs for the shareholders and, and that kind of side of things as well. But mm -hmm. because the industry is, you know, a very successful, profitable industry, there is a lot of money to be spent on research and development to come up with these kind of cutting edge technologies and a lot of at this level anyway this sustainability piece is kind of shared industry-wide you know they're not kind of keeping trade secrets in this they're trying to make everyone be able to understand the benefits um, for the whole kind of sector and presumably the bigger companies have research and development departments who are actually pushing the boundaries um i guess the smaller distillers perhaps don't have the wherewithal to to invest in research and development in the same way do they that's true, but there is also kind of shared um, access to things like the Scotch Whiskey Research Institute, which is, you know, access to, to members of the whiskey industry, same with the Scotch Whiskey Association. You know, uh, businesses in, in this space can become members of those groups and get access to the data and the insight and the knowledge. So even smaller producers could uh, be learning from the industry, you know, the big producers that are kind of putting the funds in to, to come up with the research. And, and, and what about the perception overseas? I mean, it's a global industry or, or the, the, it's a global export from Scotland. Mm. Um, if, I, if I'm sitting in, in, uh, in Asia drinking my glass of Scotch whiskey, a large part of the provenance of that drink that I'm enjoying is its heritage and its history and probably less so innovation and research and development and sustainability is, is probably less of a story. But I guess it's becoming more of a story globally, is it? It is, and especially for the newer brands that are trying to have a bit more of a different USP. You know, it's really part of the puzzle and part of the story and part of the reason that maybe their product is a bit more expensive is because it, you know, costs more to make because they're doing everything sustainably. They're using only organic ingredients. You know, all of this traceability um, and kind of sustainability is becoming a part of their marketing message that is then kind of showing the consumer, this is why you're paying a little bit more for this. You know, we have an authentic, genuine reason to charge you a premium because of the raw cost that we're putting into it at this end. 
you know, the capital investment is much higher than doing something en masse in a big bulk, you know, cheaper and cheerful way. Mm -hmm. and, and generally the industry trades on its heritage, though I'm going to come back to the heritage thing. And isn't there, a, isn't there a, a kind of balance to be made of how much do we express the heritage of the world that we're in compared to the innovation and the modern concerns of the planet? I think you can have both. I think you can have a nice balance with both. You know, I think the fact that these brands are hundreds of years old, which is unusual you know, for most sectors to have businesses that are still trading on the same name for so long, but at the cutting edge now of new technologies, new innovations within this ancient kind of traditional industry just shows how kind of forward thinking and long-term it is. You know, a lot of this takes significant capital investment. But it's because whiskey takes so long to mature, you know, minimum three years, but often much, much longer. The industry has this different approach of looking at things because of that long view and kind of long look at um, how things are going to change in the future. Yeah. You mentioned maturing there. I, mean, I observed over the last few years there was a trend to produce or, or to sell non-aged whiskies, And I'm not sure if that was driven by market forces or if it was driven by innovation and just to try something different. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? It was a little bit of both, really. I think the main reason it came about so quickly was that supply was outstripping. That there, was, there wasn't enough supply for the demand that was suddenly spiking. And there wasn't enough aged stock to put the age on the label because when there's an age, it's the minimum age, it's the youngest age of any of the components within that mix. And there just wasn't enough. Um, so there was a bit of a kind of, you know, chicken and egg there, you know, explains to the consumer, you know, it's almost the same, but this product's maybe now nine years old. But we can't, we don't call it a nine, so we'll call it, you know, a nice sounding name. And that's fine. But it also, for the innovation side, it actually gave the blenders a lot more scope because they could now access any part of their inventory and pull in interesting parcels of flavour. And actually, I was really excited about it, and still am excited about it, because it opens up the conversation around flavour rather than age. I mean, age at a certain point really is just an arbitrary number. It sounds nice if it's a 10, you know, but I know you're getting some brands that actually want to have a kind of slightly quirky number, like 13 or 17 or 21 or whatever. And But for the blenders, it gave them scope in this non-age statement. They could have interesting young stock and maybe some interesting old stock to add a kind of interesting backbone or kind of extra depth of character of flavour into the blend. So I thought it was a really positive thing, um, but it did, it wasn't maybe articulated correctly at the time, and it's kind of, they're now kind of having to go back over that to explain to consumers why it's still just as expensive, yeah. even though it's an unaged statement. And that comes from the kind of the history and the legacy piece of the industry trying to always kind of preach the old equal better which hasn't been the case and isn't the case, but there's this kind of misconception now around consumers that they think that. And Blair, you mentioned briefly there flavour. Um, you famously introduced me to cherry cola and my favourite peated malt whisky, which begins with the letter mm -hmm. L uh, from the island of Isla, um, which was a, a pleasant surprise to me, I must say. Cherry cola and, and peated whisky is a lovely combination. Uh, long mm -hmm. on ice, I can almost taste it just now. Um, yeah, I really want one. What, what, what's your view on, on, on those mixers and whiskey? There's the purist who thinks whiskey should be drunk uh, with nothing or with a, a, a teardrop of water. What's your view on, on the change? juice? I mean, I've always, as you know, I've always been very pro opening up the industry to anybody and making it accessible, getting rid of the baggage that whiskey has, getting rid of the rule book that whiskey seems to carry about, no ice and no water, and don't mix it, don't do this. And, 
it doesn't make sense because no other drink has that. Gin, everyone drinks with tonic and in cocktails and in whatever, and whiskey, because of this legacy of this way of it's marketed, it was too protected. And there's definitely a time of faith to be respectful of this heritage and tradition and quality and skill and craft. But also, if you're using really great ingredients, like a really great whiskey with a super premium mixer, you're going to get a great experience and a great drink. And it makes sense in other parts of the world where it's hot and humid and you know, you want something that's cool and refreshing. You don't want something that's 55% ABV and cast strength. And it, it doesn't make sense. So I'm totally for it. And I think it's great now that, you know, there's been big campaigns and a big push from brands like Johnny Walker to really showcase that actually whiskey and highballs is a great way to drink it and has been drunk that way around the world for a long time. It's just domestic in the UK. We've had this precious attitude of not damaging it or tainting it or it's blasphemy to do all that. And, the fact that they've they've got the budget is to really shout about it is it's going to help everybody. It's going yeah. to pull up everybody a little bit more, which I'm really excited about. And I guess that brings into the whole question of innovation in marketing, which is a whole new uh, area of conversation. So we've talked about innovation in production and innovation in making within the companies, but actually, one of the key areas for innovation is is in advertising, marketing, brand. Um, Dewar's famously created the first ever motion picture advert, uh, which if you Google Dewar's motion picture advert, yeah. you'll see it. Um, yeah. who, who, who do you see are the current innovators in advertising and brand and packaging? Who, who, who's really pushing the boat out in that world? It's a really good question. I mean, they're all really trying to be a step ahead of the next one. You know, there's a lot now looking at blockchain technology yeah. so that you can, you know, scan a QR code on the label check the, the exact details of that bottle, check which field the barley grew in. You know, so there's a lot on that kind of side of things. But there's a lot more as well back to the sustainability piece about making sure the packaging. So by 2025, all new products have to have either recyclable, compostable or reusable packaging. And that's you know mandated by the, this new sustainability strategy. So that's quite a big push. So now there's actually brands who are saying, you know, you can actually opt in to have a gift box or not. Okay. You know, so for an extra five pounds, you can have this if you're giving it as a gift. It's a really beautiful carton. It's a really beautiful tube. It adds to the experience. Or you can not have that, and it's going to save us, you know, X thousands of tons per year because we're not having to ship all these tubes around, um, and it's going to save the environment and so on. Um, and I think that's where it's becoming really clever and seeing how they're not detracting from the, the kind of unboxing experience. In the same way that when you open an Apple product, you know, a new iPhone or whatever, the, the, the box is part of the experience. Absolutely. And I think brands are now realizing that there's this fine balance between having a brand that is luxurious and premium, which should feel you know quite chunky and heavy and you know, it should feel you know decent because of its you know price tag, but having that alongside sustainability as you know, making sure the bottle is reusable or fully recyclable or whatever. Yeah, good. So it's that kind of fine balance. But I think that's where the industry's at at the moment. Definitely. Interesting. I mean, the, the, you, you mentioned so many touch points there in terms of the, the gift packaging, but then you actually, if you take the gift packaging away, there's the feel of the bottle, there's the weight of the bottle, there's the, the embossing on the label, there's the, the, the foiling on the label, there's the, the, the depth of pop of the cork. The noise well, yeah, I mean, the same way that car companies will spend ages fine-tuning the noise of a door slam yeah. so that it sounds like a premium luxury car should. You know, there's the same element you know this all these other senses are at play before you've even touched or tasted the whiskey that are just as important 
Yeah, just as it, and they actually add value, don't they? They 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 add to the perception, therefore the value. Absolutely. And actually, the value of the liquid may be X, but actually, it's X plus Y when you add all these other touch points and and experiences. Yeah. And these are maybe subtle and maybe not even you know observed by the consumer necessarily because it's subconscious. But the fact that I think this is going on, and you know, brands are putting more attention to this level of detail, it becomes part of this experience. It becomes part of the ritual. Because whiskey drinking in its entirety is a luxury. You know, we don't need whiskey to survive as a race or you know as humans. But it's this luxury that we have. You know, for those that are wealthy and you know have that status, and yeah. it's something that a lot of people don't have. But in order to enjoy these moments, I think it's important that people understand all of these little bits that go into that experience. I can think of a few few people that might argue the case that whiskey is not an essential in life. <laughs> I feel I feel like my cupboards are very bare if I don't have a, at least a couple of bottles of whiskey in there waiting to be waiting to be tried. Um, Blair, I'm interested to know what you're up to just now. Yeah, um, obviously, we've had a, a 12 months almost to the day of, of lockdown. You've travelled the world to to talk about whiskey and to explore whiskey and to and to to um, engage people with whiskey. How, how have you handled the last 12 months? Yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting one. It's been very exciting. Um, you know, it's really changed a lot for me, how I'm operating. I had a very busy schedule lined up for 2020 with trips to Asia, multiple trips to Asia, to Japan, China, Taiwan, Macau. I was meant to be going to Africa for the first time, um, back to Norway for another return visit. And obviously that all just you know stopped overnight this time last year. So I quickly kind of pivoted to do online, but not actually online tastings. I've only done a handful of them. I really started to lean into the brokerage business that I've set up, selling very rare and exclusive uh, kind of single casks of whiskey to, to private clients and high net worth individuals that want access to the, some of the rarest and kind of most prestigious whiskies that, you know, you just can't call up a distillery like you used to be able to mm. um, and get a cask, you know. So that's something I've really leaned into and I've been very, very lucky. It's, it's very successful for me. Um, my business is up about 70% year on year from the year before uh, just because I've really leaned into this. And then also I've been getting involved in a lot more really exciting kind of startup consulting projects with so startup distilleries in Asia, uh, startup brands based all over Europe. And um, so it's been really varied. Every day is completely different. And on my you know iPad on Zoom, like we're doing now, you know, from one moment I'm in Japan, the next moment I'm in Vietnam, then in Norway, then in America. And, you know, it's a blessing and a curse at the same time yeah. uh, being able to Zoom everywhere. I feel very fortunate because I know it's been very difficult for, for many others. Yeah, fabulous. I mean, uh, good to hear your your income's up and I suppose your travel costs are down as well and the, the cost of the planet's down in terms of travel. So uh, actually, you know, we, we've. I wonder if we'll ever go back to that level of jumping on a plane and going around the world. Yeah, I've been speaking about this a lot with people and, you know, the whisky industry used to be constantly, you know, in travelling around because there was a circuit of, you know, major whiskey festivals and events that were just on the annual calendar that everybody would show face at. And that just was part of the, the industry in the same way that every sector has certain trade fairs that you have to kind of show face at. I think they're still going to happen. I, I don't think this will ever replace face-to-face, but I think it will be much more selective and it will be much more impactful. You know, so I know for myself, I used to just hop on a plane and, you know, go somewhere and without really questioning, you know, I'd suddenly, you know, with a week's notice, I'd be in Istanbul you know, or wherever. And that was all very exciting. And it sounds glamorous, but it's quite exhausting sometimes. But um, I think now I'll be much more sensitive about that and much more selective about really, do I need to be there in person? And if not, is there a way that we could do it? A kind of fusion of online and offline or, 
or whatever. And I think that's going to become the new normal for the foreseeable. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about hybrid events and, um, you know, you have a, a yeah. select group of people live and then people can dial in from other parts of the world, I suppose. So that's very doable for, for whiskey conversations, I suppose. Yeah, as long as everyone has the same thing in front of them, you know, at the same time, and you can all share the same whiskey simultaneously. The only boundary you've got is um, is time zones. But, I mean, even that isn't impossible to, to come over. Um, I think I think it will be... I think well, it would be nice to go back to the way it was, but maybe not as frantic. I think the world was just a bit too hectic and a bit too frantic. Fantastic. Blair, this has been really interesting. Um, I want to just cover off one final thought. You're, you're, you're only just um, older than 20 yourself. You're relatively young in the whiskey world. Um, but what would you say to your 20-year-old self, looking back now at, um, at that young lad who was at, at university in Aberdeen, um, scratching his head, wondering what the world was going to be like. What would you say to yourself now? Yeah, it's a lovely question. Um, I think what I say to myself is really listen to your gut. I've gotten very good now listening to my gut and just knowing when something feels right or just feels wrong. And I've learned the hard way, as people have to do, you know, but actually being able to say no to things is a good thing sometimes. And recently, every time I've decided when I've had that, you know, gut feeling that it's not, that something doesn't sit right, and I've said no, something 10 times better has come along that I couldn't have done had I committed to this other thing. And I know that that consistent, whatever you want to call it, it, I know that that works for me. So that's probably what I'd tell my 20-year-old self. And also I'd tell my 20-year-old self that you know, I wouldn't really believe that now I you know, get paid to drink whiskey for companies. Um, that would have probably seemed completely you know, ridiculous uh, when I was 20. But you know, I'm going to actually turn 31 on Sunday this week. Um, so it, yeah, that's a funny thing to kind of tell my younger self. I think. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Listen to your gut, but also um, taste and smell and enjoy the product that you you've built your career on. Yeah, and I mean, I don't really see any signs of you know jumping ship and moving to another industry. I've been I've been in whiskey now for over ten years, which I find incredible. But it's also been really nice to have you know contacts like yourself that we've kept in touch all this time. You know, I've seen your business grow and develop, you've seen my business grow and develop, and it's really nice to be able to collaborate. And that's probably another thing I tell my younger self. When you first met me, I think you remember I was very sensitive about everything. I was making everyone sign NDAs. You know, I was really cautious because I knew I was sitting on something with a lot of potential. Um, and actually, I was trying to do everything myself. I was a kind of one-man band trying to do all the jobs. And actually, when I sold World Whiskey Day uh, to White Light Media, they told me that they did a quick audit of it all and realized that there was at least eight you know, different roles to, to fulfill, and I was doing them all. So my lesson after that was that I learned that actually the best thing is to collaborate and share. And actually, it can be better for everyone to collaborate that way. And it's something I practice in my business all the time. Rather than trying to compete for the same prize, if I can bring in another person that's going to help get towards that goal, and we split the prize that's better than nobody getting prized, yeah, yeah, so to great. speak. So that's my other lesson I'd probably tell my younger self. Super, Blair. Well, listen, super to talk to you. Um, I'm going great, thank to, you. Um, uh, as soon as we can, we're going to enjoy a glass of whiskey together. We won't do it just now because yeah. it's only middle of the day and we shouldn't really. But uh, very quickly, we're going to get our heads together and enjoy a dram or two. It's been lovely talking to you. Thanks for your time. That would be great. No, you're very welcome. Thank you, Andrew. You've been listening to The Den, a series of conversations about the business of creativity and creative thinking in business.